If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. On his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul had started the work to plant the church in Corinth. After visiting the more famous nearby city of Athens, Corinth became one of the most important, large, and strategic cities of the Roman Empire, being actually re-established in 44 B.C., by Julius Caesar after a whole century of being virtually uninhabited. It functioned politically to control that very important trade route between Rome and the eastern Mediterranean. Even though it was in southern Greece, its political power structure and flourishing commerce reflected a decidedly Roman influence and culture. A large contingent of its inhabitants were actually freed slaves and army veterans, along with many Jews who had recently been expelled from the city of Rome. And commercial enterprises flourished in this area. Paul stayed in this wild and diverse city about a year and a half He found a Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who had come to Christ before coming to Corinth, and the work of proclaiming the gospel began. Silas and Timothy joined him there, too. While on his third missionary journey and staying in Ephesus, Paul began to hear troubling reports from Corinth. The church was in trouble. Sinful behaviors and lifestyles were brazenly being tolerated in the church. He wrote a letter dealing with sexual immorality. We know about that letter, but we have no copy of it. He heard more reports and wrote the letter we're now studying, 1 Corinthians. So how could Paul address the multitude of issues There's a bulletin insert that you might find helpful. It's an overview of the whole letter. You might want to look at it real quick because it sums up something that you don't really get if you just look at the flow and read it yourself because it's all intertwined. There are two main overarching areas that Paul wants to deal with. And you'll see there that the first one is conflicts within the congregation. And there's five themes that he deals with, and you have those references there. And then there's also cultural compromise issues, and there's seven themes regarding that particular issue. And those are all listed there as well. You notice they're kind of going back and forth with one another. I just stick mine at the beginning of the book and kind of go, okay, where are we? Um, It's a good reference to have. Paul brings all of these issues under the light of the gospel. In other words, he knows he's got to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this letter reveals remarkable insight 
into how that theology of the cross applies to all of those specific issues. So literally, we will be on a roller coaster for who knows how long as we deal with all this, quote, stuff, unquote. We're now in the middle of a passage in which Paul shows the Corinthians how they were ignoring two important truths about Christian leaders. And it's interesting that this is kind of how he starts off this book. Remember, he started off with, there's divisions among you after he had really said what he thought about them, that they are believers. He saw many of them come to Christ himself. He led many of them to Christ himself. Now, his implication is, if you understood and applied these two truths in your congregational lives, there wouldn't be all the discord and division that you're now experiencing. Now, he's also saying there wouldn't be a whole lot of other messes either. It's obvious that this is one of the key factors that they just didn't understand, or if they did, they didn't want to follow it, the implications of these truths. And in the first of these two truths we covered last week in verses 5 through the first part of verse 9 in chapter 3. You might remember in these verses, Paul used an agricultural example. Why? To remind them that Christian leaders in the church are not supposed to be given the allegiance that is reserved for God alone. They are only servants of Christ who have sown the seed of God's word into your lives and then helped cultivate what God has made grow. You might remember we explained that that word actually is a good picture, servant, of a waiter who serves the food of God's word. And after you eat, you don't heap praise on the waiter. My, that was good, that was great. Okay, the word comes from God, his spiritual food to us. And that's kind of the big point that Paul's getting across there. The Corinthians had gone so far as to divide themselves into groups vying for position and power and influence based on their loyalty to one of their main teachers or ministers. Now, what's really strange about this is that the people he mentions, himself, Peter, Apollos, even Christ, what's wrong with their teaching? See the point? At the beginning, the reason why Paul is upset is because these people hearing solid teaching, being led to Christ, of course, they had some strange influence because Christ obviously wasn't theirs, but there was a group that was claiming some kind of weird loyalty to him, which sounds good on the face of it, unless what? Unless they had distorted it in some ways and made it another one of these just groups, which is very possible. We don't know that for sure. Paul doesn't go into that. But they had turned this into ugliness. 
they were lifting up and glorifying in their particular leader, which for those guys, as Paul did, abhorred this behavior when he found out about it after he had actually left. The others, only Apollos was still around of that. Peter wasn't there anymore if he did or if there was a following for him. It's very strange group click kind of activity. And it was sinful and it was selfish. They made individual leaders the champion of their particular group. And they looked at themselves in kind of a contest over and against the other groups. Now, what had happened in between the time Paul left... It's now been three or four years, something as many as almost five between when he was there and now where he is on the third missionary journey when he writes this. Well, there's obviously been a whole lot of other people raised up who are leaders in the church and who are teachers and who are filling in all those gaps. So this has gotten out of hand and it's called factionalism. Today we're going to look at the second of the two truths, which is in the last half of verse 9 of verse 17. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9b, verses 17. You are God's field last week, God's building this week. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that alone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy And you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. Well, in these verses, we see Paul using another similar but distinct analogy, an architectural example. The Corinthian believers are the building being built by their leaders the workers or builders. Whereas in the agricultural example, 
the field was the church and the leaders and the workers were the ones who planted and then cultivated. God owned that field and the workers. We see in verse 11 here that the foundation of the building is Jesus Christ. The foundation was laid by the apostles, Paul here, and then built upon by the rest of those called to be ministers and leaders in the church. Now, one thing that will help our understanding of all this is if we remember just how much time it took to build any ancient building in the days before power tools and equipment. It was a very slow process. Many times it took decades in the first century for a temple, etc. Now, why is that so important to remember? Well, one reason is because all of us are so impatient about everything. So in order to get the point today, you have to slow your brain down enough to understand what this looks like. Because while the foundation was still the most vital and important part, other builders would complete various phases of the project and then move on, retire, or die because it wasn't finished. And then other builders would then take their places. What's the point? Paul laid the foundation, which was Jesus Christ, the theology of the cross. And he did it in a year and a half. A lot of teaching, a lot of preaching. And then others have built on his work. And so what's important? It's the project as a whole that is important. So it's ridiculous and foolish to focus any praise upon just one of the builders. That's the picture. Especially as you realize the builders themselves have shared a common vision or purpose. The plan. The big picture. Well, are there Differences between the architectural example and the agricultural one? Well, there's a very strong emphasis in our text today on the accountability of the builders. In verse 10, let each take care how he builds upon it. Let each one. And then pay special attention to verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So right there, we get something very exclusive, don't we? The only possible foundation for God's people, his church, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. No other good cause We'll make it. If there's any other type foundation being laid, then it will not be God's church. The foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified 
is imperishable. If you take a breath right here, do you already get the feeling that Paul is strongly addressing this point precisely because the Corinthians seem to be ignoring, even rejecting, what the foundation of their church really is. When he goes on later about all the other various issues and sin problems, will these people see his rebukes as evidence of their own drift away from the Savior? Will they begin to remember just what foundational teaching Paul laid down for them? and then be absolutely horrified at how far off they had gotten? Well, obviously, Paul hopes so. He's trusting God to work. And as Paul continues, he gives them some striking explanations here in verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Got some questions? Let's get into it. First, notice that there are only two types of building materials. You're going, wait a minute, I count six. Isn't there six? No, there's only two types. Materials that will not burn up and materials that will burn up imperishable materials, and perishable. Second, the day refers to the day of the Lord, the time of final sifting, when the fire tests or distinguishes between good and bad work. Each builder's work will be shown for what it is. No questions asked. Third, a builder's work that does not burn up will bring a reward. And a builder's work that does burn up will bring loss. The distinguishing factor between these materials is solely, only whether they will last through fire and perishable. It is interesting that so much of Solomon's temple, for example, prominently Featured what? Gold, silver, and precious stones. Also, gold and silver, some of you are ahead of this little discussion. You're thinking, well, they melt. Yeah, but they stay what they are. Wood burns. There's no more tree log sitting there. It's gone. These are imperishable materials. Those whose work is put through the test of fire are primarily the Christian leaders, but also others who have been equipped to minister. As we read in chapter 1, verse 2 of the letter, 
Paul is writing to the church of God that is in Corinth to everyone who's a member of this congregation. He addresses them as a whole with special insights for leaders and members altogether. But we also see at the beginning of verse 12 the word anyone, which is sufficiently broad to include others in the church who have been equipped by the leaders for the work of ministry. And Paul writes about this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So both are included. The primary focus is on the leaders. Just think about the history of Israel when his, Israel got off track, which was most of the time, who was the first group mentioned that God was going to hold accountable? The leaders. Well, that's always going to be true, but the followers, the ones equipped, if they're equipped in the word, they also have a responsibility for their faithfulness. So we have a lot to think about here, do we not? So what's the building here in this architectural example? The building is the Corinthian church. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. The Corinthian leaders are the primary builders whose work will be tested by fire The work of those that the leaders equip for ministry, building up the church, will also be tested by fire. Does that leave anybody out? If you're sitting here and you think, well, I don't want to be equipped. Everyone is called to be equipped with whatever God has supplied you with to minister some way or form. Another way to think about this, I know this is more like saying you're a rock, but bricks put together for a building, each brick doesn't get to sit there and go, hey, I don't like being by this brick or have this one above me or have this one below me. In the building, you have been put here for a reason. And attitudes come out real quick in such close proximity, do they not? I know they're static, but it's still an interesting picture that we need to consider. You know, this should be sobering for all who are church leaders and for everyone else who's aware that they're being equipped. But even if you're not aware, now you know. If the leaders are sobered by this, then the whole church should benefit because the blessings of being led and equipped and encouraged by those whose lives reflect this humble dependence and submission to the Lord and His Word, those blessings will be more appreciated. There will be more gratefulness. There'll be more selflessness. 
So what does receiving a reward mean? First of all, Paul reasons that a reward is given for something that is done on a voluntary basis. In other words, he's saying that work done for the Lord must not be looked at as earning credit, as payment for good works. That's kind of a foundational attitude. Now, just a hint, as we're going to look at a contrast in a minute, what's our usual way of thinking? Yeah, I'll help if I can get something out of it. What's in it for me? I haven't been recognized. I'm not recognized like I think I should be. In fact, on and on and on and on. So the attitude that we start with and our motives for serving the Lord are very, very important and foundational. And listen to what Paul says about himself. Did you see this in verse 10? According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul exemplifies this whole attitude. He's operating because of the grace given to him. What's he thinking? What's he thinking? I used to find Christians to have them executed because I thought I was so great and high and mighty and I was really following the Lord. And then I met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus and I found out I was actually hurting him. And what did God do? He saved him. He brought him to himself. He gave him a special calling as an apostle. And so we see in his life a great example of someone who appreciated being delivered from the domain of darkness that he thought was righteousness and actually delivered to the true kingdom of Christ, the true Messiah. That's what it should look like. Paul joyfully says that his work is performed by the grace of God given to him. How is that different from my attitude, from your attitude? So the Christian should not work for payment or reward, but because of their love for the Savior. Second of all, faithful workers judge the materials they use by the standards of God's word. In other words, they're concerned about their motives and the conduct, their conduct, and about their selfless love in their service to God because that's who we are ultimately serving. We can easily drift into thinking that anything we do in the Lord's name is in his service. And it's not hard to spot people that think like that, is it? Try to hide it, but boy, it comes out when we get like that. You know, anything we do in the Lord's name is in his service just as long as we, you fill in the blank. 
if we're sincere or we think we are, we're hardworking, we're well-meaning, I'm doing it right. But are the materials we use to build coming out of the gospel of Christ and him crucified? Or are we relying upon the wisdom of this world and our own strength and our own creativity and wonderfulness as we think through it? The next couple of verses after our passage today talk about this. There's a warning there that is scary, but it gets your attention. Building the church with imperishable materials upon the foundation that is imperishable itself because it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That must be the priority for church leaders as they are specifically given this responsibility. Maybe an old anecdote may help here. A passerby saw two masons laying bricks. He asked the one what he was doing and reserved the curt reply, Can't you see? I'm laying bricks. The other, when asked what he was doing, looked up and with pride in his voice exclaimed, Sir, I'm building a cathedral. You think it's coincidental that we've had our TV sets and online news services giving us multiple visual aids of Notre Dame burning? What burned? The wood. Spires fell. What's left? It's a mess. But I think it helps to see a beautiful, the picture of a beautiful building that obviously, spiritually speaking, is pretty wasted in this day and time as far as what's going on. But for the picture of a building, doesn't that help a little bit? See that second mason saw himself as a part of something bigger. Not an individual, well, I'm going to sign every brick I put on here or make sure everybody knows about every brick that I've laid. He sees his purpose as being a part of God's bigger plan. But what about the builder whose work is burned up in verse 15? We read, who will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, detail-wise, the picture here is of someone running out of a building engulfed in a great fire, but saved nonetheless. A couple of commentators actually made it a little more sensual. If somebody's running out of a burning building, what do they smell like when they get to the paramedics? Smoke. It's very distinct. This is not a picture of someone who made a profession of Christ and then lives the rest of their lives with no regard for Christ or the church. That's not the picture here. That person would be better described as having made a false profession in the first place and therefore not even a believer. This is a picture of a genuine believer 
who is either a leader in their church or one who has been equipped for ministry and building. They have, however, bought into the world's wisdom in their building, their philosophy of ministry, and so are their materials, which may look like they're substantial and adequate. But the test of time and finally God's fire finds the materials perishable and not based in the theology of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as a result, this builder will suffer loss, some kind of loss of reward, but not the loss of salvation. There's another serious question that Paul deals with in verses 16 and 17. What happens to the building? Who's the building? The church. And those who have a part in trying to destroy it, what happens? Well, in verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do we know that? You know why the temple doesn't have to be rebuilt and won't be in eschatology? Because God's people gathered are his temple. Universally, wherever they gather, here's a local example. You ever noticed how in the Protestant Reformation the churches started looking different? Architecturally and design-wise on the inside, a lot plainer. Why? Every one of you should know this answer. Because they had just broken away from Christian professing in places where there was gilded gold, idols of various saints, etc., 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 so much that when you go in, what do you do? Oh, my goodness. Bam, 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 bam. God, these guys figured out, because God says this is the way it works, is that we are inhabited by God himself. And there's his presence when we gather together should reflect his character, who he is. And that's what people should notice. The atmosphere is important, but just think of it. Do people visit and leave and say, those people are different. They bow before someone they know and is greater than themselves. And they worship him. That's the goal. That's the point. Well, this is quite a warning. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. In case anyone hearing or reading this would miss the seriousness of Paul's teaching, 
and all of his rebukes here in chapter 3, these verses should get their intention, should they not? God's temple is his church. This warning is again directed to builders who have used perishable materials that cannot withstand God's fire. Leaders or anyone in the Corinthian church who is doing damage to the church, beware. Paul was never under the illusion that everyone in this church were genuine believers. Ever. Never under that illusion. And some of the ones that were ringleaders in these things, they were actually out to make themselves the premier whatever in this body of believers. Or who just enjoyed sowing discord amongst the people, some of them obviously were not the real thing. As we've already seen, by diverting attention away from the gospel while focusing on the approval of the world and its wisdom, the Corinthians are in danger of undermining the very message that called the church into existence in the first place. Folks, this is our mission, and it's a warning to us because it's so easy to do things for the world's reasons to do them and to not recognize that we're getting away from the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There are lots of ways at destroying the church. And almost every one of them flows from drifting away from the gospel or letting people lead who are drifting away from the gospel. Factionalism, heresy, building the church with superficial conversions and wonderful programs. Entertaining people to death, gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism. The list goes on and on and on and on. God's temple is the body of believers. The church is holy because God's spirit dwells in the hearts and lives of the believers. Is he going to address this with some specific situations? Yes, not very far from now, actually, in this letter. By their conduct, the Corinthians were actually desecrating God's temple and grieving the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close this morning with something that I hope will both help us see the seriousness of what we've learned and also encourage us in what's ahead. We need both. And this is articulate, but it's easy to understand, and it's from... The EFCA, yes, 
This is encouraging. D.A. Carson. It is possible to build a church with such shoddy materials that at the last day you have nothing to show for your labor. People may come, feel helped, join in corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. If a church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ, and him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. Not for a moment does this suggest that, say, managerial skills are unnecessary or that basic people skills are merely optional. But the fundamental, non-negotiable, that without which the church is no longer the church, is the gospel. God's folly, quote-unquote, Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we see this clearly, we will understand that it is God's revelation to us of his Son that is of paramount importance. Recognizing the need for the Spirit of God to illuminate the minds of men and women who otherwise will not grasp the gospel? Now there's a list, so let me read that again. Recognizing the need for the Spirit of God to illumine the minds of men and women who otherwise will not grasp the gospel, what do we do? Do we recognize that, first and foremost? It's God that has to open eyes and change hearts. First, we will emphasize prayer. Why? Because we know it's God that works, so we go before his throne of grace and ask him to work. Use the power of his word. Second, we will live and serve in the light of the final judgment because we realize that we must give an account for our ministry. It's not that we shall refuse any practical help from those who have something to say about technique or sociological profiles. Rather, third, we will remain utterly committed to the centrality of the cross. Not just a vague or at theoretical levels, but in all of our strategy and practical decisions. Fourth, we will be fearful of adopting approaches that might empty the cross of Christ and its power. And last, 
we will only seek the approval of him who tests the quality of each builder's work on the last day. That's a plan. That's a reminder. That's very succinct, what we're doing here. And we pray to God above that he will keep us on that path in wisdom and grace and a recognition of the many souls who do not have peace or purpose because they do not know Christ and their sins are not forgiven. Let's pray. Oh Lord, again, we're we're humble before your word as we gain a little more insight into your redemptive plan and purpose for us, not just as individuals, but as a, as a church. When we realize that you put us together with this group of people here, for these reasons, it is humbling. There's no room for our self-glory because we're here to lift you up and bring glory to you. Lord, we know that you do these things. You help us understand these things in so many different ways, and some of them are hard. But we thank you that you're committed to finish what you started in each one of us as you've made us new creatures in Christ. And so we band together as you call us together to lift your name up, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. And to bring to each other's attention our own propensity to wander and to think incorrectly. Knowing that your blood, the blood of your son covers all sin and that we can run to you, to his cross and confession and repentance and experience the peace and reconciliation that only comes in him. We ask that you guard and protect us, help us stay on course. As time goes by, we pray that all the youngsters that you are raising up now will come to know you at an early age, that you bring them to yourself. We pray for the young men and women in this church who are taking the baton from so many others as far as responsibilities and ministry and equipping We thank you, and we pray that you'd help each one also be encouraged to look to you for their power, for their strength, for their wisdom from your word, that there'd be great joy in serving you and great peace in knowing that your plan is so much bigger than our own individual ones. Lord, what a great purpose and calling you've given us to lift up our creator, to know his son whom you sent to die for us so that we could be rightfully related to you, see our sins forgiven and grow in faith. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us in him. It's in his name we pray, amen. Would you please stand for our benediction?
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. You're just